Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road. Getting from there to here. It's been a long time. But my time is finally. I can feel the change in the world right now Nothing's in my way And I'm not gonna hold me down no more No, I'm not gonna hold me down Cause I've got faith on the heart Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dr. Jess Armine talking to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Tonight we have an incredible show for you. We have a very special guest, Dr. Leslie Fine, who is a Lyme literate MD and uh, one of the first neuroendoimmunology type centers, as I understand, in the state of New Jersey. And uh, we have our own Sean Bean, who is going to interview her. And I am going to be running the chat room and listening for um, callers, okay? So if you have a question on the chat, please type it in, and I'll get it over to Sean to ask Dr. Fine. (coughs) Excuse me. But this is a golden opportunity to learn all about Lyme from a true expert, okay? So uh, listen up. Sean, please. Guys, I'd like to have the pleasure of introducing my astute colleague, Dr. Leslie Fine. I have been working with Dr. Fine for approximately a year and a half now in collaboration with her Lyme patients. Um, She has been a great asset um, to my learning tools. I have been learning so much from her, uh, more than she ever knows, and that learning has been a profound impact on my practice, as well as many other practitioners I have been sharing it with who had little clue of the true clinical aspects of what it really takes to go into helping to identify um, Lyme disease. Uh, Lyme disease is a very, um, is a disease that is among us. It hides, it's known as a stealth pathogen. Um, I want to introduce Dr. Leslie Fine. She is a rheumatoid, uh, rheumatoid, yeah, rheumatologist. Yeah, rheumatologist in a private practice in New Jersey since 1998. She has a bachelor's with honor degree from South Africa. She also holds a master's in public health from the Columbia University. She got her MD from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. 
She had an internship and medical residency in the internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Um, she's also a rheumatologist who has a fellowship with NYU. Uh, she also helps as adjunct, adjunct professor at Rutgers University. Leslie, it is a pleasure to have you on tonight, and the listeners are really, really excited to get a professional um, view of exactly how Lyme, what Lyme disease is and how it is affecting America. Leslie, could you give us a little history of how you got into Lyme disease from your current um, practice? Okay, so originally I was still... Uh, I was still in training at Mount Sinai when they started to describe Lyme. And it was the first infection that had been shown to trigger autoimmune diseases. And an autoimmune disease is a disease where you make antibodies against yourself. And that had always been something that fascinated me because it sounds counterintuitive that you're going to have a situation where you're making antibodies against yourself. And here was this bacterium that could come in your body and trigger rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and this turned on my intellectual, my intellectual gene, and it was something I wanted to do from the moment I heard about it. Um, as I, I went to the very first conference at Yale, Connecticut, online, which was also 1984. Actually, it could have even been 1986. But when I started uh, in 1988 here in New Jersey, uh, I immediately started looking for the signs of hidden tick-borne diseases, and I started to find them. And the more I started to find them, I was treating people who had been previously undiagnosed or had been diagnosed with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. And as that started to happen, of course, uh, you know, by word of mouth, I started to get more and more people with complicated histories and undiagnosed illnesses, and I've basically been doing that ever since. That's, a, that's an incredible um, journey and transition that you've made. Um, one of the things that we really want to dig into is, is how come is, why is Lyme missed so much in traditional medicine? Um, there's so many reasons. There's so many misconceptions and mis um, misinformation. In terms of even early cases, for example, the rash is seen in less than 50%. If you have a rash, even those, less than 50% of those are bullseye rashes. So this common theory of it's usually associated with a bullseye rash is completely incorrect and false. If there are rashes, they frequently are in the scalp or the groin or the armpit, ticks like to go, and they're not visible and they're not painful, they're not itchy, and they could be very transitory. They could come and go like within the space of 24, 48 hours. So the rash is not a reliable part of the history or the physical examination. Most people don't know they've been bitten by a tick. The tick bites them and drops off. So if you say to somebody, have you been bitten by a tick, they won't know. If you ask about a rash, they, they, won't, they, they will not have seen it or most likely will not have seen it. So then it comes down to a clinical diagnosis. And 
it's a very elusive diagnosis. Sometimes people just have a headache or a flu or a neck stiffness and don't necessarily present with all the so-called criteria. Um, if you're lucky enough to have the tech, I, I strongly suggest people get the tech tested. If you happen to have a rash, even if it's not a classic rash, and it's at the time of year where you would expect to be bitten and you were exposed in an area which would be endemic and wooded and, and likely to be associated with tick. Under those circumstances, um, you would be treated. In my opinion, you would be treated. However, there are doctors, many, many, many doctors, who insist on having a blood test when the patient walks into the office with the very, very early signs and symptoms. The blood test is not going to be positive. It's not going to be positive for at least three weeks and up to three months to six months. So waiting for blood tests to be positive is missing the diagnosis and allowing people to become chronic. Um, in terms of why the late cases aren't diagnosed, that's because they present with, so, with a myriad of symptoms that mimic so many other things that it requires, for me, several hours of interviews to try and figure out um, if, if the cause of their syndrome is Lyme or if it's not. Um, is, is, do you want to ask questions? Is that... What's that? Um, what I want to know is, is you showed me and told me about the wonderful characteristics of uh, Bartonella. Could you explain to them how mystical this um, creature is and how okay. it morphs? Well, that's completely different. So uh, that's even more difficult and elusive in terms of diagnosis. Um, at least a lot of people, a lot of doctors are aware of Lyme disease and they're aware that they, the tests are not reliable and there's a chance they will diagnose it. Bartonella is completely different. Uh, about 50% of ticks in New Jersey carry Bartonella. It, uh, it was used to be known as cat scratch disease or cat scratch fever. And 2001, uh, I was one of the first people who discovered that a patient who had Lyme disease also had Bartonella. And this particular patient had become acutely paralyzed after a tick bite. And uh, she had both Lyme and Bartonella in her spinal fluid and in her blood. And ticks that was found on her property were also positive for Lyme and Bartonella. And that triggered uh, testing of ticks in New Jersey. And a couple of years later, that was published, and we showed that about 50% of ticks carry Bartonella. Uh, Bartonella is a completely different disease. Uh, it, it does not cause some of the symptoms that Lyme does. Uh, it, it, if you catch it early, which most people don't, uh, you get a very large swollen gland in the area of the bite. You usually don't get a rash. Um, often it will be introduced by the same tick that gives you Lyme. Ticks can carry 12 or more infections. So if, if you get bitten by a tick, there's a good possibility that you're not just getting one infection, you're getting multiple infections. Uh, so Bartonella can be infected into you via the tick at the same time that Lyme is and will disseminate through the body but will not 
be easily diagnosed. Um, the testing is uh, in its infancy at the moment. The current antibody test that's available picks up only about 10 or 20% of cases. So again, that, that's a diagnosis that is elusive and very, very difficult to make. Um, it, it, you need to ask me questions because because Bartonella, I could speak about that for like three hours. So <laughs> I, I want to know, I know. That, that, what, what the questions are that the public wants to know. Um, oh, the, the public wants to know this one. Um, your, could you help identify the difference between the vitamin D and vitamin D125 uh, in layman's terms so people could understand the ratio and how important that is in... Okay. Um, that we can do. Um, the original work, well, actually, the, the original work was done on animals. Um, when, when people were doing cell typing and looking for markers on cells, they discovered that uh, the immune cells had a receptor for 125D, which is the active form of vitamin D. And everybody was curious what our vitamin D receptor is doing on immune cells which triggered a lot of research and initially animal research. And it was found that there's this peculiar mechanism. Uh, there's, a, there's a receptor called the VDR, the vitamin D receptor, and that's responsible, partly responsible for your immune response. So it's partly responsible for antibody production. The certain bacteria and viruses have an affinity for that receptor. And if they lock into that receptor, they can switch off the VDR and thus decrease the antibody production and thus protect themselves from being detected by the immune system. The bacterium with the highest affinity for this receptor, apparently times higher affinity than most bacteria, are uh, the Lyme bacteria. When they, in, when they uh, occupy the receptor, the 125 gets displaced and becomes elevated. And as a reflex, a reflex mechanism, uh, the nature of which I don't understand fully because I'm not a research scientist, but um, the result of this or a consequence of this is two things. Number one, the 125D acts as a pro-inflammatory substance. And number two, the 25D drops. So most doctors only measure 25D. So if you go into your doctor and you get an annual physical, They'll do a vitamin D level, but they'll do a 25D. And if they find that it's low, they'll frequently prescribe D3, which is 125D. If you happen to have this abnormal vitamin D response to infections, by giving you D3, you're making the patient much worse and you're increasing the inflammation. So um, my recommendation, well, for patients who have chronic illnesses is to do a ratio of 125D over 25D. So in a normal person, 25D is, trans is um, transformed into 125 either by the sun or by the kidneys. In this abnormal immunological situation, the 125D can be 100 where the upper limit is normal or 80 something, and the 25 can be like 10, and your ratio can be eight to one, and under those circumstances, you'll, you have a risk of getting worse and worse and worse as the vitamin D goes up. And in animal studies, that's what 
I found fascinating is in animal studies who have this Th1 inflammatory pathway, if you feed them uh, vitamin D3, they get thicker and thicker and thicker. And it's not that they're getting vitamin D toxicity. It's because in this situation, it's acting as an inflammatory substance and it makes people worse. It also can trigger um, the, an increase in the ACE, which is called the ACE enzyme, angiotensin converting enzyme, and that's associated with sarcoidosis, which now explains the role, why calcium goes up in sarcoid, but that's a whole different story. But um, the whole role of the vitamin D receptor in immunology has been a recent fascinating uh, finding, which I now use in my clinical practice as part of the diagnosis, as useful to me as doing something like a sedimentation rate or a CRP looking for inflammation. I, I'm going to have to be, give a big thank you for that one. Um, I was out at a conference um, with about 200 to 300 different doctors, and when I mentioned that information, their heads just completely turned around and looked like I was having, you know, four heads. But, yeah. but the end result of that has been doctors and stuff being awakened to that information, and they've been contacting me with these cases and stuff. Sean, I got, you know, I got a vitamin D ratio of greater than five. I'm like, well, you better be looking for inflammatory, you know, pathogens potentially or something that's flaring it up. And now they're starting to be known about this fact. So I want to thank you for that because it's not just um, a secret. It's something that should be shared because it will help the diagnosis of Lyme or other um, inflammatory conditions easier for doctors um, because a lot of them to an LMD the other week and he poo-pooed everything that I was trying that you know I was trying to do um, because I found a lot of markers that you taught me about the ECP the BEGF the but I had three or four different markers that were showing the line and then the hygienics came back and it was you know um, undecisive you know so I want to really thank you for that information because I'm getting the word out there, and the results have been phenomenal. Um, could you it, go over? Just to finish it up, it triggered a huge fight, of course, the way everything does. Any, anything that changes the paradigm um, triggers a fight. But Trevor Marshall, who did the um, human research, was doing mm -hmm. research on sarcoidosis, and he himself had sarcoid, and he, he he treated and cured himself by working with the vitamin D receptor and low-dose antibiotics and Benicar, which is something that also displaces the organisms from the... Um, so he was trying to convince the FDA to not recommend so much D because he said, you're killing people who have inflammatory diseases. And then, of course, there's a huge body of research which indicates that by increasing vitamin D and by giving people these supplements, you decrease cancer and so on and so forth. So he triggered this huge debate and a huge amount of animosity. So, um, you know, right now there's, there's this huge divide uh, amongst doctors, which there is about everything. So that's nothing new. Sorry, what were you going to say? Uh, I was basically saying um, we were out of the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and uh, I asked the naturopath there said, do you guys look for vitamin D? They're like, yeah, we look for vitamin D. And then they said, oh, vitamin D. I said, do you check for 125? I said, oh, yeah, we check for 125. 
And the next thing you know, I look back on the protocols they were given. They were given five to 10,000 IUs of vitamin D a day. And in the research that I've seen um, with the help of Dr. Ben, we were actually seeing a correlation between the in, the uh, in re- uh, how this is actually potentiated in cancer itself of a, as a possible pro-inflammatory. So there's a lot of research that has to be done on this because this is a huge factor that right. could be a... Um, that could manifest into, you know, are these doctors giving high doses of vitamin D promoting cancer because of the fact they're creating pro-inflammatory, you know, increasing pro-inflammatory response well, in the body. That's why, that's why Dr. Marshall was so inflamed and so angry and adamant that the FDA should at least put out warnings that uh, there are potential risks to taking uh, 125D and he ended up getting very, very frustrated and doesn't lecture here in the U.S. too much. I want to get him here to speak at a mm-hmm. conference, but um, right now he's mostly speaking overseas um, in China, in Europe, um, but not very much here in the U.S. Well, with the work that um, Dr. Jess and a group of other people that we're doing, including yourself, we are changing how people uh, and doctors view medicine. And the outcome has been phenomenal. Um, mm-hmm. The change of times are upon us, and we're seeing a huge um, uh, paradigm shift in a matter of uh, about six months um, from working with other doctors and getting the word out. You know, by doing doctor consultations and stuff, I'm not just helping one doctor. I'm helping a whole bunch of his patients because they're starting to see these current trends and stuff. I had a case up in New York where this poor guy had chronic fatigue for 15 years. Doctor called me up after going to Dr. Ben's conference. He goes, oh, by the way, um, I did a vitamin D 125 on a person. Their vitamin D was 8, their 125 was 100. I'm like, hmm. I said, have they been checked for Lyme? They're like, yeah, but have they been checked properly for Lyme? So, so now they're investigating that. And this poor guy had been chronic fatigue for 15 years. Well, the, the thing about it is um, one girl um, did her PhD thesis on this and looked at patients who had been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and found about 50% tested positive for Lyme, which is extraordinary because the test itself is, is flawed for many reasons. The one reason is that there are now um, 11 genetically sequenced strains and yet only one is used for the commercially available test. So for that reason alone, you expect um, tremendous underdiagnosis. Secondly, there are certain what's called bands on the Western block that are excluded from the CDC criteria, which means that the, most of the, the commercial laboratories will not even note that they found them. Uh, whereas, for example, Stony Brook's and MDL are two laboratories who will note that they found those particular bands, even if they're not included uh, but with the CDC criteria. So the test itself is flawed. The, the quality of the kits vary from lab to lab. And then you think about how many cases there must be who are not showing positive on the test. So if you, if you look at the statistics this way, the CDC now admitted that they got 300,000 reports per year, and they also admit they probably only get that only one in 10 cases get reported. 
So now we're talking about 3 million. And then if you look at the test, the reliability of the test uh, is probably about 10% because when Dr. Fallon did his study at Columbia, looking for patients throughout the U.S. being treated for chronic neurological Lyme, he had to screen 5,000 to get 500. So that means, or that implies that, oh, five, sorry, 500 who fulfill CDC criteria. So that means that of people being treated clinically for chronic neurologic Lyme, only 10% of those people are CDC positive. So when you look at those numbers, you're going up in the 30 million range. So the numbers are staggering. And the, the chances of getting a positive test are so small that it requires knowledge of all the peripheral details of Lyme to be able to make a, a proper diagnosis. I'm also seeing a lot more in Canada, too. It's coming out of the woodwork in Canada. I've caught two uh, so far who are going to be in contact with you. Um, for, I did the groundwork. I did everything, and it was obvious that they had Lyme. The hygienics was strong enough to potentiate the Lyme, and that's why uh, I referred them to you because I know you deal with a lot of people who are from Canada uh, who are making great progression because it's, it's not well known about up there at all. Well, the Canadian Lyme Foundation is fantastic. They are fantastic. They are much more proactive than some of the groups here in the U.S. Um, I'm, one of their, I'm on one of their subcommittees, um, and I know that they have dedicated a tremendous amount of money and that power to educating doctors, running conferences, um, trying to get people interested in, in scientific studies, and I'm on the committee that is this is screening people, doctors for and scientists who want to do studies in Canada. So I actually give a lot of kudos to the Canadian Lyme Foundation. They're doing a tremendous amount. That's, but once again, you know, you have the doctors who are resistant to changing the paradigm and that's really right. it's always the battle. Right. That's why I I'm getting my foot into some of those areas up there with some naturopaths and stuff. Um, trying to take the information that I've learned from you and, and share it with them so that they can help um, more of their Canadians up there who mm -hmm. have it and are just um, lost in the rough, so to speak. Um, and a lot of them are scared because they're scared of they treat that they would possibly lose their license and stuff. Um, that's what the major... They are. They are being investigated in every... Um, in, unfortunately, it's happening everywhere. Um, New York State has passed legislation. I haven't read it, so I can't, I can't testify that it doesn't have loopholes, but they've passed legislation attempting to make it easier for doctors to treat. Uh, Pennsylvania just recently passed legislation as well. Um, I'm actually the medical director of the Pennsylvania Lyme Society, um, he did send me the legislation this week. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are states that are trying to make it easier for doctors. Connecticut, of course, did make it much easier. And uh, Connecticut is a place where you, you generally can make a diagnosis and treat without running the risk of losing your license. Uh, Rhode Island had passed legislation, but it's got a loophole in it. So they are now investigating 
a fabulous doctor who's been helping patients and I saw his record and he keeps meticulous records and he's an excellent guy and he's being investigated right now in Rhode Island. There's a fantastic rheumatologist in North Carolina. She's being investigated and she graduated from Georgetown. Um, so the, this witch hunt is still continuing. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good word to describe it, a witch hunt, because all your doctors are trying. You know, there are some doctors out there that are taking advantage of people, and you're going to find them in any, any area. So, um, and I've ran into a couple cases like that, and my heart goes out to those people and stuff um, who are just, you know, raking in the money and just giving false promises. But you, on the other hand, um, I've got a lot of positive feedback from the people I've sent you. Um, that, you know, they, they adore you because you're straightforward, you're direct, and you don't beat around the bush. And that's what they really respect. One of the um, things that we always wanted to know is, is, does Lyme just come from ticks? You mean, does it only come from ticks? Yeah, does it only come from ticks? What other organisms uh, can transmit um, Lyme disease? Uh, yeah, you know, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I've had two patients so far since 1988, so that's not many, who had a mosquito bite that was followed by a bullseye rash. One in particular, she knows the mosquito bit her there. She had an enlarging rash and then had acute meningitis. And so she's a definite case. But, but we don't really test mosquitoes. They did a long time ago, but they haven't tested them recently. Uh, so in terms of insect vectors, we don't know for sure. In terms of Bartonella insect vectors, we do know that it's transmitted by fleas, ticks, mites, flies, and chiggers. So Bartonella is transmitted by far many arthropods. Um, I also, my, my patients have pointed out to me that dog ticks carry Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which... In, in the past, I've always said to them, don't test the dog ticks because they don't transmit infections. And if they do, and I did check that it's, it's correct, the, the dog ticks do carry Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So if I am now sending out the, the dog ticks as well. So if somebody comes in with an engorged dog tick that they've removed from themselves, I am sending them out, so I'll see what happens this year. Uh, but traditionally, dog ticks were not a transmitter of Lyme. In terms of whether it's sexually transmitted or not, um, we have no studies on humans. There are studies on animals where it was not sexually transmitted. There was a recent study that it was found in vaginal secretions, but that doesn't mean that it's transmitted sexually. So we don't know the answer to that question. Um, so the probability exists, but it's just not. We don't know. And I don't think it's fair to tell every single couple to use protection when they, one of them has been diagnosed with Lyme, if we don't know. The only time that I do suggest strongly is when a male gets bitten in the groin and, and uh, one of his first symptoms will be either prostatitis or testicular pain. Under those circumstances, I do suggest to the male that, that they take precautions while they're on antibiotics because in rhesus monkeys, the studies have shown that they've isolated uh, spirochetes from 
20% of the ovaries and 20% of the testicles. So I do think we have to be cautious um, in those circumstances. But as far as females are concerned, I have no clue how to assess whether or not a female would be um, likely to transmit it to her partner. So I can't make recommendations to females at all. Okay. Um, Distasis-wise, that's a definite, correct? If what's been proven for sure is if a woman is bitten by a tick carrying Lyme in the first trimester and she's not treated, the fetus can have a poor outcome. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be involved quickly in a couple of pregnancies where the woman was infected early on treated them for the entire pregnancy and while they were breastfeeding, and thank God their children are fine. Uh, In terms of chronic Lyme, if a person has chronic Lyme, there are no studies, and I haven't seen cases of women transmitting it uh, through the placenta in chronic Lyme. So what I do with patients is I ask them to use protection until they're completely disease-free for three months or or symptom-free for three months, and then they get pregnant, if they start to have symptoms, we can send out urine tests for Lyme. It's called the urine antigen test, so I can screen them that way. And uh, if there's any suggestion that they're relapsing, uh, it's safe to use penicillin or ceftin during pregnancy. So thank God, in all the years that I've practiced, I haven't had any, uh, any women have any pregnancy problems. So one thing I wanted to know is, is um, could you give us an example of one of your most prized cases, one of your most prized cases um, that you feel was one of the most, re- I know you have a lot of rewarding ones. Could you go over one that was extremely, um, one of the most unique cases that you had? Well, actually the lady that had the Bartonella, what happened is she was, a high-functioning entrepreneur. She owned her own business, full of life, full of energy, and she went to a dermatologist who diagnosed um, a bullseye rash and said, you've got Lyme, which I thought was great. He diagnosed her with Lyme. He put her on doxycycline, and then the rash changed, and it turned into this pustular. So she went back to him, and he says, I don't know. Now it looks almost like shingles. I don't know what it is. It looks like a virus. So he added Veltrex. And when she came into my office, I looked at the rash and something in the back of my head said cat scratch disease. So I must have remembered a picture of a rash or something that I'd seen in the textbook. And I said to her, you have cat scratch disease. And um, unfortunately, it was very rapid, a really rapid deterioration where she suddenly lost feeling in her legs and started to lose motor function and -hmm. became completely paralyzed. So she had a lesion in her spinal cord and had no feeling and no movement below her waist. So she was admitted to the hospital um, where she was found to have an X-ray, her chest X-ray, that was consistent with sarcoidosis. So that was the first time that I'd seen Bartonella turn into sarcoid immediately. Um, and sarcoidosis is supposed to be an autoimmune disease of unknown etiology. 
Um, so her chest X-ray, her chest CAT scan looked like sarcoid. Her she had lesions in her spinal cord, and she was positive for both Lyme and Bartonella. And fortunately, at that time, I was working with the head of infectious diseases in New Jersey, and he agreed that we give her IV antibiotics to cover both Lyme and Bartonella and to cover viruses just to be completely safe. And she ended up going to Kessler, and the end of the story was that she regained full function of her legs, except for a very mild foot drop, which slowly went away. So that was one case that was incredibly rewarding. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to have seen quite a few cases of people. For example, there was a a girl who was about 16 and had been diagnosed with, with lupus, and she was in a wheelchair when I first saw her and on 60 milligrams of prednisone a day. So she was very bloated prednisone and was in a wheelchair because of uh, muscle weakness. And when I went through the history with her parents um, and her, it was very clear that she had had Lyme, even if the tests were negative. And I said to them, the tests are going to be negative because you've been immunosuppressed. So I, I didn't expect to have positive tests. But she had started to go deaf as part of her illness. So she was about she had lost about 50% of her hearing. Um, as I started to treat her, I weaned her off the steroids and I put her on IV antibiotics and oral antibiotics. And slowly, slowly, she got out of the wheelchair. She started to walk. She originally had huge swollen knees. Um, her knees improved. She went to physical therapy. And she regained full function of everything except her ears. Uh, she's now permanently deaf. Um, that she was one of the first people to get a cochlear implant, which is working beautifully so she can hear. And I went to her wedding, and so that was another case that was incredibly rewarding. With, um, with the intervention of the methylation, which has been the hot topic of Lyme, um, you were a very traditional approach um, doctor until probably about maybe about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, could you give... Um, could you tell the listeners how the um, how your patients have been improving since the intervention of a um, combined approach or an a collaborative effort with the principles of the? I, to, in my defense, I've always um, been, been a doctor who reads up about supplements, and I've always been an advocate for supplementation whenever I've been treating, and I've tried to educate myself. But it was one of my patients that brought my attention to methylation. I can't take credit for it at all. She said to me, are you looking for the MTHFR mutation in the patients? And I said, the who? And <laughs> she, she explained it to me, and I said, oh, my God, I'm missing a whole lot, aren't I? And she said, yes. Um, so because of her, the MTHFR mutation. And then I had a group of people who had this mutation, and I said to them, I hate to tell you this, but I don't know who to send you to because I have no idea who's an expert in this. So they, I formed a little chat group for them called my methylation group, and I said to them, you guys go out and find somebody because I have no idea who to use. So they tried various 
um, alternative medicine people, and then they found Sean. And one after the next came back and said, Sean's definitely the best. So if we choose one out of all the people we've seen, we've chosen Sean. So I said, good, I'll give him a call and invite him over to my office because I know nothing about this. (laughs) And that's when it started. So obviously you taught me a hell of a lot. And I met Sean a few times, like on the parkway at a, not a dino, what was it? At a Pennsylvania. Parkway <laughs> between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And he would sit there and talk to me. And I'm like, slow down. I don't know what you're saying. Could you just slow down? <laughs> Speaking a different language, uh, not understanding like a quarter of what he was telling me. And um, eventually, I'm not. I'm learning a little bit, a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. But all I know is that my patients are saying that you have dramatically raised their quality of life. So, for example, one patient who I've done everything for, everything I can think of, and she was just constantly miserable. And for the very, very, very first time since you've seen her, she had a smile on her face. And I, rem- she- I remember she was one of many and they are so grateful because you've taken, you're fixing them from the inside and I'm fixing them from the outside. So this collaborative yeah. approach is awesome. That yeah. girl, I, I know how many people she's seen and for her to come in with a big smile and say for the first time, I feel good was amazing. So, um, that, great that, person, that person actually had, through the collaborative effort between yourself and myself, had the collaborative effort to actually go live her dream and move out and go where she wanted to live for a long time. Um, and that was just totally amazing. Um, that but was that's one we, the, it's so exciting to me. It's so exciting. Yeah, and we're, we're making... We're making progress on a weekly basis with a lot of your patients, too, um, uh, using the bio-individualized medicine approach, uh, which I'm the co-founder of with Dr. Chess. We're implementing the um, how is the body interconnected, how each system is intertwined with each other, how aren't the doctors looking at the nooks and crannies. Because um, you see my lab report, you see my reports and stuff on what stuff I pick up um, that I share with you so you can also use it for your own uh, patients in the future. Right. Um, now, um, with the, the interventions of the, um, um, like, in collaborative, uh, with, even with IV therapy you've been doing with your patients, they've been making progress um, with just That's vitamin true. C. That's true. I wasn't doing IV vitamin C before Sean came along. I was kind of a little bit nervous about it. I wasn't an alternative doctor. And, and the thing is, my patients were being charged ridiculous amounts of money to go and get IV vitamin C drips. So I called the pharmacist and I said, the, the compounding pharmacist, and I said, how do I mix this stuff up? And he said, it's so easy. You just do blah, 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 blah. And I said, all right, so we're going to do it here at my office. And we charge our costs to give these people something that they're paying $150 for at other places. Exactly. Um, 
and because you have to stay within the, the because you have to stay within the uh, dosage amount, which is completely respectable, they are still getting some benefit from it. Because um, um, you have to stay in the allotted because of um, being on the radar, and because of being on the radar, you still are, are under scrutiny a lot um, for um, taking a leap of faith and going outside your comfort zone, uh, which you've done a couple of times um, for me and. I, I appreciate you for that. Um, so I'm very happy to have been working with you. I look forward to continuing our relationship and growing. I look forward to helping your clients, um, I mean your patients and my clients, to uh, help them get to another level uh, of well-being. And I hope this message goes out to the, all the other doctors out there that um, everybody doesn't know everything, and we need to work together in order to make this happen. Absolutely, and this is the future of medicine. Absolutely. Um, yes. Leslie, I would like to thank you for your time. Um, I know you had a very long, busy day, because uh, I know how Mondays are and stuff. Um, would you mind answering maybe one or two phone calls? Not at all. That, okay. Thank okay. You. I got it. Go Alrighty. Uh, the caller from the 914 area who's been holding on for a half hour. Are you are you still there? Hello? Hello? Hi, this is Dr. Armine, and you have Dr. Fine on the phone? Yes, how you doing? Okay. Good. My name is Anthony. I've I, I actually been dealing with um, what I believe is Lyme and co-infections for the last couple of years. Um, I had a bullseye rash in 2010. Um, I was diagnosed by um, Dr. Cameron at Mount Kisco. Right. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, his, his lab showed that I, my titers for Bartonella were very high. My really? Lyme, yeah, my Lyme test was negative, but he said that most likely I have both. Right. Um, so he started treating me, and... Um, I've been working with him for, for years, and I'm still having a lot of problems. I, I still have weakness uh, on my right side of my face, a lot of nerve issues, uh, neurological things, and it just, we just don't, I just don't know at this point what I'm actually dealing with. Um, um, so I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts on what direction well, I should be looking at. Yeah, it, it's so it's so inappropriate for me to second guess what somebody else does, another doctor. But um, when I don't have success, even with intravenous antibiotics, and and I, I add Cindermax in all the Lyme patients because Cindermax has been found to definitely be effective against what's called the cell wall deficient form of Lyme. So I always include Cindermax about one week a month in the treatment for Lyme patients. But if right. I've done everything I can, antibiotic-wise, and they're not responding, or they still have uh, permanent neurological manifestations, then I work with a neurologist in Trenton who happens to be excellent with neuropathy. And um, with the appropriate testing and skin biopsies, some of the patients have been eligible for IVIG, intravenous gamma globulin, and right. that is going to turn a corner because 
there is uh, something called the Lyme-associated autoimmune polyneuropathy syndrome, where it's already become an autoimmune phenomenon, and the only thing that seems to reverse it is IVIG. So um, that's the only suggestion I'm willing to make. I mean, Dr. Cameron has an excellent reputation, uh, so I can only tell you, and as I say, it's very inappropriate that you second guess any of his treatments. Right, right. Uh, Dr. Fine, that's, this is my fault without, uh, for not announcing to the, uh, to the audience that uh, your, your question should be generalized. That, oh, okay. uh, Dr. Fine is not allowed, is, and it would be inappropriate for her to make specific recommendations. Um, so in our next calls, um, if everybody could remember that, and uh, if you wanted to make an appointment with Dr. Fine, obviously she's easy enough to find. But okay. uh, no one can treat somebody over the radio. That would be um, <clears throat> grossly inappropriate. Thank you for your time. Okay. We have to get another another phone call. Thank you. The nice person who is uh, waiting on the 248 area code. Are you still there? Hello? Guess not. Okay. Person at the 610 area code. Hello? That's our area code. Hello? Hello? I heard them. <laughs> no? Guess I not. Heard them. It sounds like they did. They just don't realize you're talking to them. Yeah. Well, if, if um, they'll call back, I'm very sure. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, Dr. Fine, I really appreciate the time that you spent and, um, you know, speaking with us and your obvious immense expertise and experience in this area. Uh, I know I learned a bunch of things just by listening. Um, so I really appreciate your time. I know that um, Sean was, uh, you know, pleased as punch to say, she's coming on the show. I said, okay. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I mean, I have a lot to be grateful for having met Sean. He's opened my eyes and, you know, changed my paradigm. So whenever that happens, it's a very exciting day in my life. Well, it's a good thing. It is, uh, it is an ode to your professionalism that you have your eyes open and um, that you're willing to keep looking for the benefit of your patients. You know, and that's what, um, that's what it's all about. You're right. This is the future of medicine. Okay. And, uh, cooperation one of the, the um, one of the things ahead. I can say about that one of the things I can say about Dr. Fine is, is um, if she doesn't know something she will research it I mean many times I walked into the office when she was on Google um, either PubMed or another clinical site trying to look up stuff so um, when a doctor says oh I'll go research it most of them may not be telling the truth but I can assure you that Dr. Fine is on that m computer and is researching and constantly learning. That's what makes her one of the most um, pleasurable people to work with because we are like-minded in that area. If we don't know something, we will look it up or we will um, refer the people who know it we, uh, or we will contact the people who know who know the answer. So okay. that, that is a great trait that is rare in these days. Uh, it's to find a line doctor who is actually in the research-based uh, approach. Right. I always tell people I either know it or I don't. I'm very clear about it. If mm -hmm. I don't know anything, I say I'm sorry I don't know anything. There's a lot to be said for honesty and not following, um, you know, pre-printed protocols that just are out there for everybody. You have, everybody's got to be treated like an individual. I think that 610 person called back. Hold on. 
Hi, this is Dr. Armine. Are you there? Hmm. Hello? It sounds like they're on a cell phone or something that they keep freaking in and out. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Well, I can't hear. Dr. Fine, are you, um, since going to the methylation, uh, conference or sector cell with Dr. Ben, are you planning to possibly do uh, get back on out speaking? Uh, I, I think um, well, what I want to do, I mean, if he, if he invites me to talk about Lyme, I'll be thrilled to bits. But what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do is I've already asked Rutgers if there's a possibility of us getting CME credits for a conference. Mm-hmm. At my dream conference, would be to get people like you and Ben as speakers, people like Trevor Marshall, who's done the vitamin D research, the VDR research, Bart Nicholson, who's done um, the Gulf War research, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm trying to think who else. Oh, yeah, Eva Sati, Dr. Sati, who's done all the Lyme culture research, who's mm-hmm. shown that the Lyme forms um, biofilms and creates round bodies as a way of resisting antibiotics and so on. Um, she's agreed to speak. So there's Dr. McCloskey in Switzerland who's done the Alzheimer's research and has isolated um, spirochetes. Dr. Ellen McDonald also has done that in the U.S. So I could put together a really, if you'll excuse my expression, kick-ass conference with multidisciplinary speakers. All of us sort of cutting edge, um, doing different things and controversial things, but very stimulating and very exciting. So I can't wait for that. That's, that's awesome, Dr. Fine. I want to have the astute pleasure of introducing you to my mentor, Dr. Jess Armine. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be able to help your patients as much as I do. He is oh. the one who taught... He is the one who taught me how to do the neurotransmitter testing, how to improvise on the neurotransmitter testing. Because that neurotransmitter and adrenal testing has been a godsend for your patients. That has been the turning key for a lot of your uh, people. And I just want to introduce Oh, shucks, Sean. (laughs) That's awesome. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. That's that's because Sean has been incredibly patient with me in teaching me the, uh, the genetics. Okay, it was uh, it's, uh, and we have a very, very good, uh, <clears throat> we have a very good uh, friendship, a very good working relationship, and uh, the combination of us two uh, exceeds. Um, we there's almost nothing we can't um, we can't end up treating from one direction or another, you know, because we both have, uh, you know, have, have a slightly different point of view, but it's very good. And you'll have to be added to the list of my cutting edge awesome speakers at this awesome conference in my head. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to neurotransmitters, um, when I run into some <clears throat> patients from Lyme, he's the guy that I go to, even though that I can usually spot Lyme within a short amount of time because I see certain parameters. Um, just as a reinforcement, I always um, get a second opinion because I don't want to get myself with a lot of these cases because when you're dealing with neurological Lyme, it's a whole different monster out there than just normal... Um, the neuropsychiatric manifestations are scary. They are. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And managing them, managing them is, is uh, partially getting rid of the bug and partially uh, healing what the bug did to the brain cells and well, then rebalancing the neurotransmitters with uh, amino acid therapy. It's, it's, it can be fairly complex. Because these people don't respond to psychiatric medication the way other people do. And then in comes Sean with his recipes, and all of a sudden my patients are saying, wow, I'm sleeping so much better, and wow, mm-hmm. that, those anger temper tantrums have gone. And, you know, all the medication in the world did nothing or gave them side effects or exacerbated it. So it's been tremendously helpful. Okay. Well, we appreciate. I know Sean appreciates um, the fact that you have allowed him to work with you, and I've I've been on the sidelines listening each each week when he comes in about all the various cases that that your outcomes that the outcomes of of the patients in your clinic are getting you know better and better and better uh, oh, because cool. of a combined approach, and that's uh, what we've always hoped for. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm sending you somebody I saw today because he's a young man. He, firstly, he has unexplained hair loss. He has strongly positive mindset, but he's absolutely not responding. Not responding. I've tried different combinations. He's got a low-level ANA that doesn't even nearly qualify for the diagnosis of lupus, and nothing has helped him. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So his next you. <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> oh <my> gosh! <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> you keep studying this stuff, and all of a sudden, when the master's ready, the students appear. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? She, Dr. Fine will take them as far as she can get with her uh, vast base of knowledge. And then the one thing I really respect you for, Dr. Fine, is when you don't know something, you're not afraid to pass the ball on to get them proper help. Yeah. That's why, you know, the, I always love collaborative. Collaborative oh, work. One person wants Hello? All right. What's that, Leslie? I said one person can't know everything. No, they can't. No, they can't. That's why we're slowly slowly putting together um, a group of experts for the uh, Institute for Bioindividualized Medicine, which is going to house some of the best minds in the medicine on them, on each individual specialty. Um, The panel is going to be uh, a mind-blowing with each one of our own specialties. Um, it's going to be happening probably in the next six months. Um, we're actually mm-hmm. in a process of, of creating, uh, uh, putting together some vast amount of information and hopefully to get a manual out there to teach doctors um, the new paradigm in medicine, which I believe is going to be, or not is, will be the future of medicine. It's an integrative approach uh, with the allopathic versus the naturopathic or the integrative approach, which is going to set a new standard, hopefully in medicine follow. I agree. Well, we are at the I, end of our time. I appreciate you inviting me. I had a good time, as you expected. Um, 
I'm, <laughs> so, I'm so happy you did. I really am. I'm so happy you had a good I time. Know, You're I a wonderful Les, speaker. I know, I, I know Leslie for a long time, and I'll tell you what, when she gets, <laughs> when you get on her topic, she gets going. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fine. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Good night. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time I know we didn't get to everybody's questions tonight. But if you uh, email them to Sean or I, uh, we'll pass them along to Dr. Fine and get an answer for you. Uh, remember that the doctor can make specific recommendations or prescribe anything, but general questions are okay, and you should take advantage of her, exp- her expertise. I want to thank Dr. Leslie Fine for being here. She's uh, just an amazing individual. And uh, the true future of medicine is someone who's collaborative, collaborative, but not only collaborative with other physicians, collaborative with alternative physicians and uh, other people of other expertise. So I wanted to thank her for being here. Everybody, we'll see you next week. We'll have another good show. Thank you for your support at all times. Have a good week. And keep the faith. Chronic illness is defeatable. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.